We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 26. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. If you need a Bible or a pen, raise your hand. Someone will bring you one. As we look at this passage today, um, I want to draw your attention to the fact that the disciples, once again, uh, come off looking not so smart. Um, They are not the sharpest tools in in the shed. Um, you see, they are afflicted with spiritual blindness. Uh, Jesus has a clear vision for his kingdom and what it's going to look like, and they cannot see it. Um, And as we read this, it's really important that we must see ourselves in the disciples. We have got to see that we are like them. Um, So let's take a look at this. Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 26. This is God's word. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And Jesus asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said, that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the bread, the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full, and there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away, and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And Jesus cautioned them, saying, Watch out! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida, And some people brought to him a blind man and begged to touch him. 
And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. This is God's word. Let me pray. Uh, Lord, uh, like the disciples, um, we are blind, and we have a hard time trusting you. So I pray that this morning your Holy Spirit would be here and open our eyes to see you for who you are and to trust you with all of our heart and our mind and our strength and our soul. I pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Parents, we've got plenty in the room. Uh, Maybe you've experienced this before where you tell your children something, say you have a three, four, five, six-year-old child, and you tell them something. Now, this is a child that, keep in mind, knows very little about the world. They know not much at all, just basically what you've told them. And despite that, they're completely confident that they know better than you. They're 100% sure their way is better. Mom, you don't know what you're talking about. Dad, what are you doing? I know what I'm doing. I'm, I'm in charge. I should be in charge. They look at you and they think your plan makes no sense. If they were in charge, things would go better. Uh, As we look at our passage today, I want to plead with you that when you don't understand what God is doing, that when life seems to be going sideways, when his plan for your life makes no sense, when it hurts, when you see that there's an easier way, when you don't understand what God is doing, I want to plead with you to trust him. That's what this sermon is all about. Trust God. Because he is trustworthy. So you'll see there uh, in your outline, on page 7 of your bulletin, you'll see an outline. And we're going to be answering this question as we look at the passage. Why should you trust Jesus' word and not your own understanding? And we're going to pick up on four, four reasons why from our text today. First, because Jesus has proved himself over and over. Uh, look, at, look at verses 1 through 10. Uh, if it felt like deja vu while we were reading this, it's for good reason. It's because Jesus had just fed thousands of people two chapters ago in chapter 6. Nathan preached on that just a few weeks ago. And Mark, the author of this book, he wants us to see the similarities. He's, he's intentionally repeating things so that we know, oh, he's doing it again. Again, a great crowd gathered listening to Jesus. Again, Jesus has compassion on them. Again, sending the people away for food is not an option. Again, the disciples see no possible way. They can't think of any way that they could be fed. And again, they scrounge up a couple of loaves of bread and some fish. Again, the crowd sits down and Jesus breaks the bread and prays. 
And again, the people are satisfied. They eat their fill of bread and fish. And then finally, again, the disciples get into the boat, just like in chapter 6, and they quickly start to worry where their next meal is going to come from. They quickly start, they immediately start to forget that Jesus can provide for them. They've forgotten to bring bread, we see there in the following verses, and they're hungry. If you've ever been on a boat with 12 other dudes that are all hangry, you can imagine what this discussion was like. Um, It was not a a calm discussion, they were upset with each other. They're arguing about where they're going to get their next meal from. And then finally, Jesus speaks up. Look at verse 17. He says, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? He goes on to say, do you not remember? And then he reminds them, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the four thousands, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? There they are arguing about bread, where their next meal is going to come from. And Jesus reminds them, do you not remember? I provided for you and the masses miraculously twice already. They're worried about their next meal and he's pleading with them to remember that he has proven himself over and over again. So let me ask you, how many times, how many times has God provided for you and then months go by, weeks, days, even hours like the disciples, hours go by and we're already forgotten. We've already forgotten how he's provided for us. We're back to worrying about work, about inflation, about job security, about making ends meet. We have to see ourselves in the disciples. When you read this, you should think, oh yeah, I'm like that too. Mere hours have gone by and they've already forgotten. We spend so much time I'll speak for myself and say, I spend so much time worrying about bills, money, how ends will meet. And here Jesus is again reminding them, stop worrying about that. We know, if you've been alive long enough, you know that the worrying, the fear, the angst, it has not served you well. It has not helped provide for you. It's not worth it. Why not just trust God. Now, I'm not saying that you should be passive, that you should sit idly by. God doesn't call us to that. He calls us to work hard while we trust him completely. So next time you're anxious, sit down and reminisce about all the times God has provided for you. Just as Jesus reminds the disciples, remind yourself, remind your spouse, Remind your kids. Maybe someday your kids will turn to you and remind you that you can trust God. He has been faithful. Look, here you are. All the, all the worries, all the time you spent worrying about where your next um, paycheck will come from, and here you are, alive and well, 
sitting here. God has been faithful. He's been faithful to provide. And that brings us to point two. Why should you trust Jesus above your own understanding? Because he guards you from real threats. You see, we're like the disciples. We're constantly worrying, constantly worrying about the future, about where our next paycheck will come from. And our own understanding tells us this is something you should be worried about. These material things are the biggest deal. These are your biggest concern. You should be worried about them. Inflation, job security, any kind of physical provision. We have no trouble worrying about these things, do we? I don't. But Jesus says there's actually a much more real threat. There's something that we should be concerned with much more than those things. Look at verse 15. And Jesus cautioned them, saying, watch out. Beware of inflation. No, that's not what he said. Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. He says, stop worrying about food. And instead, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. Now, what does this mean? What is the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod? Uh, In a word, he's talking about false teaching. False teaching and unbelief. False teaching regarding who Jesus is and what he came to do. So look at verses 11 through 13. It's going to help us understand what this leaven of the Pharisees is. So remember, this is right after he just fed the 4,000. Uh, the Pharisees came and began to argue with Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. On the face of it, uh, upon the first time I read this, I'm thinking, why not just give him a sign, Jesus? You could certainly do it. It seems like a reasonable request. Uh, But remember, Jesus has already proved himself to the Pharisees over and over again. And ever since chapter 3, when he healed, uh, chapter 3 of this book, the book of Mark, he healed a paralytic and forgave his sins. And ever since then, the Pharisees have been out to get him. Um, This is what uh, Mark chapter 3 verse 6 reads. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus how to destroy him. So he's, he's proven himself. They've already seen the signs. They've just rejected the signs. And ever since then, there's been these little groups of Pharisees wandering around, trying to find Jesus, trying to trap him, trying to get him killed. And this sign that they're demanding, they ask for a sign from heaven. It's a specific type of sign. Basically, they're saying, we want you to prove to us that you're the Messiah we want you to be. We want you to be a Messiah who will use political power and physical violence to overthrow the Roman Empire and put us in charge. That's the kind of sign we want. But that's not who Jesus is, and that's not what he came to do. So the leaven of the Pharisees and and Herod is false teaching, false teaching and lies that undermine the identity of Jesus. And Jesus uses this metaphor of leaven uh, 
very intentionally. Um, if we have any bakers in the room, anyone who knows how to bake bread, I personally don't. But the way I understand it, leaven um, is like yeast. It's almost undetectable, and yet it completely transforms bread. It takes it from being little to being big. It's subtle and difficult to detect. I certainly wouldn't be able to detect it. And yet its power can completely corrupt and shipwreck your faith. And you see the the disciples are so preoccupied with what they perceive as the real threat. They see we're hungry. This is an existential threat to our life. We need to deal with this now and argue about it. But Jesus is not concerned with that. He says there's a much more important threat, and it's false teaching. False teaching which seeks to sneak in and quietly corrupt Jesus' message. For some reason, we, we miss the real threat, and we're constantly fixated on the false threat. This is what we do as humans. You, maybe you know a dog Maybe you have a dog friend or you have a friend with a dog. I had one growing up. And the dog was deathly afraid of the hose. I don't know if he thought it was a snake or what. I don't I don't know why, but he was very afraid. If you picked if you got if you got near the hose, if you picked the hose up, he squealed and ran away as if it would kill him or maim him or something. You know, it doesn't make any sense. Like the hose, it might get you wet, it might make you a little uncomfortable, but it's not gonna hurt you. And then at the same time, and maybe you know a dog like this, at the same time, that same dog is more than happy to run into traffic and chase cars down the road all day long. Feels completely justified. Of course, the cars will actually kill that dog. And the hose won't. But the disciples, they're like this. And and we are like this. We think we have an accurate read on what will shipwreck our lives. But we're, we're wrong. We're, we're afraid of the hoses of life. So I have a question for you. It's, are you worried? Are you watching out for the things that God says you should be watching out for? Or do you use your own wisdom to determine what is dangerous? In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus tells us, Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Um, That's a hard commandment to obey. That's hard for me to obey, but that's what he says. He says that is not something you should be worried about. You should not be anxious about that. But then here in this chapter, he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And then in Matthew chapter 7, he says, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You see, Jesus knows. He knows us better than we know ourselves, and he knows that it is the lies that we believe, the false teaching that we will fall into, it will subtly corrupt our lives like leaven. Those are the things that will shipwreck our lives. Not those things that we so naturally worry about. 
money, provision, comfort. And Satan, Satan would love nothing more than to distract you with pretend threats while he captures your heart so that you fall victim to his real attacks. We must, as Christians, we must trust Jesus' words. We must trust him when he tells us what to be worried about. And this brings us to point three. Why should you trust Jesus and not your own understanding? Because you are blind to your own blindness. Let's look there at verses uh, 22 through 26. Now we're going to see Jesus heal a blind man. Again, he um, spits. Uh, let's, let's read this. Jesus spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him. He asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Uh, so again, Jesus spits on the guy. He's done that before. I, I don't know why, but he likes to get spit involved in his healing sometime. Um, and at Jesus' first touch, he doesn't heal him completely. He goes, being, he goes from being completely blind to having a little bit of sight. And then he touches him again, and he goes from having a little bit of sight to being able to see everything clearly. This healing, it takes time, not because Jesus lacks power, but because this man is a metaphor for us, symbolic of of how our spiritual blindness takes time to heal. And Mark includes this healing very intentionally right in between two scenes, this one and then the next one we'll deal with next week. He's not just recording this miracle. He's pointing out that like, like the blind man, the disciples are spiritually blind. And it will take multiple touches for their eyes to be open to see clearly who Jesus is and what he's up to. And really it won't be until Jesus' death and his resurrection and his ascension and then the coming of the Spirit that they fully understand, ah, I get it. I finally get it. Look there at verse 16. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? He's asking the disciples, you have eyes, don't you? You have eyes. Can you not see? Do you not understand? He's pleading with them to realize, you guys are missing the point. You're missing the point. He's trying to convince them that they are blind so that they can stop trusting in their own wisdom and start trusting Jesus. And like this blind man, he's going to heal them little by little. But first they need to understand that they are in fact blind. That they, what they think Jesus is up to is just wrong. 
And Jesus has an entirely different plan, and we're going to see this next week as he calls them to come and die, to take up their cross and follow him. You can imagine um, a blind man. Now, if you were blind, you would hopefully be wise enough to know that you should not get behind the wheel of a car. I hope that you would know that. Yeah, I'm not going to drive. I can't see. Seeing is very important for driving. I'm not going to do it. But now imagine you're a blind man and you think you can see just fine. I don't know how you've become this self-delusional, but somehow you think you can see. And you get behind the wheel of that car. It's going to be dangerous. Dangerous for you, dangerous for everybody on the road, dangerous for anybody in the car. It's not going to go well. And this is the disciples. They think they know what Jesus is up to, and they just are not getting the picture at all. And we are often like this. We're often like this. We're blind to our own blindness. And we must trust Christ at his word because we have blind spots. We have blind spots, and by their very nature, we don't know where they are. We must trust Christ when he tells us how we should understand the Sabbath. We must trust Christ when he tells us, this is my design for marriage. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands. Doesn't make sense to us, but we must trust him. We must trust his view of disciplining our children, even when it doesn't make sense to us. In order to do this, we need to study his word. We need to know his word so that he can guide our steps. Psalm 119 famously says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Even when you think you know better. And this happens to me all the time. I think, God, I don't know about this. Even when you think you know better, when your way makes way more sense in your own mind, trust God's word above your own understanding. And that brings us to point four. Lastly, why should you trust God and not your own understanding? And there's so many reasons, so many that I'm not able to get to. Um, But here's point four, is because he alone can see clearly. The disciples, they have this vision of what it's going to be like to follow Jesus. And over and over again, their hopes will be dashed. They will be wrong. And if you've been following Jesus very long, this has probably happened to you. So many times, (laughs) so many times. But Jesus actually knows what his kingdom is like. It is his vision, not ours, that we must follow. He is the one with the plan that will come to pass. Our plans will fail. His plans will not fail. He has no plan B. He has plan A, and it will happen. And we can trust his plan A. See, as Christians, God has given us a measure of spiritual insight. 
And slowly, he will help us to see clearly, just as he did with the disciples. But in this life, we will always see, we will always see in a mirror dimly. We will always have a level of spiritual blindness. But Jesus does not. He has a very clear vision for his kingdom. Our Lord has no spiritual blindness. Look what the Bible says about God's ability to understand and see everything. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. That's crazy. Every hair on your head has a number. Boop, 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 boop. Every single one. That's a lot. God knows all of them. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. His understanding is unsearchable. That means if, even if God explained to you, you still wouldn't get it. The Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. And then finally, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. God knows everything. He knows everything. He is the ultimate know-it-all, he, and he has no plan B. Do not try to outsmart God. Please do not try to outsmart God. We have blind spots, but he does not. And there will come a time in your life, maybe that's today, when a belief that you hold to firmly, something that you know deep down in your bones is right, will directly contradict what God's word says. And you'll be left with a choice. One, you can harden your heart and do it your own way. Or two, you can trust God at his word. Trust that he knows better than you. And it will not be easy. It will be a wrestling match. You will wrestle with the Lord. And I'm saying you should wrestle with the Lord. But you should trust him. When your life is not going how you expected it to. My life has taken many twists and turns, as I'm sure yours has. Trust him when it takes those twists and turns. When everything in you says, look, I've, I've forgiven this person a thousand times. I've forgiven them over and over again. Enough is enough. And you look at God's word and he says, forgive them seven times. 77. When you don't know how your present circumstances could possibly be for your good and for God's glory. That happens to me all the time. I think, how can this be for my good? And how can this be for your glory? Trust the Lord. So Christian, where is God calling you to trust him today? Uh, Many of you have probably maybe even heard me talk about Charles Blondin. Um, He was a daredevil, a um, 
acrobatic guy who his thing was crossing tightropes. That was his thing. He gave his whole life to it. And in 1859, he was going to cross a tightrope across the Niagara Falls and he was going to walk across without any sort of safety precautions or anything. And of course, he publicized this. He wanted to be famous, so he publicized it and 50,000 people showed up. All kinds of people were placing bets. Is he going to die? Is he not going to die? There's, you could bet on it. It's 1,100 foot long, back and forth. Across Niagara Falls. If he falls, I assume it's certain death. So there he is. He, he crosses. And he does it effortlessly. And then he goes back and forth. He starts doing somersaults out on the wire. He's just showing off now. He takes a camera out there. There's actually a picture of this. He takes a camera. And this is before like iPhones. This is 1859. He's got like the tripod. He takes it out there. And he takes a picture of the audience from, from on the tightrope. And then finally, he turns to his manager. His manager at the time was Harry Colcord. And, he's, and he offers to him, hey, you want to ride at my back across the tightrope? And of course, that's a scary question. One mistake, and you both fall to your death. But Colcord He had seen him. He had seen him go back and forth. He had seen how much he could balance, how all the feats he could accomplish, and he trusted him. He said yes. He actually got on his back. And as Colcord got on Blondin's back, this is what Blondin said to him. He said, look up, Colcord. You are no longer Colcord. You are Blondin. Until I clear this place, be a part of me, mind, body, and soul. If I sway, sway with me. Do not attempt to do any balancing yourself. If you do, we will both go to our death. Hmm. Those are instructions you want to listen to. (laughs) They both, they made it across. They made it across. They both lived pretty amazing. Christian, when you give your life to Christ, and he is calling you to give your life to him, do not attempt to do any balancing yourself. No matter how much your instincts kick in, your body is screaming for you to go your own way. Trust him. Trust his plan, his commandments. He is trustworthy. He is. He has proven it over and over. Even when it hurts, even when it's hard, even when you don't want to, I'm pleading with you, as you're now pastor, to trust our Lord. He is worthy of your trust. Let me pray. God, um, you are worthy of our trust. And we acknowledge, Lord, that we are like the disciples. You feed us and 4,000 others miraculously. And moments later, we have forgotten 
and we're worried about the very next thing. Father, forgive us. Would you teach us to trust you? Because you love us, Lord, and you are trustworthy. You are working all things for our good. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.